All right, so just a quick recap of where we are. Uh, the first two verses that we covered last week are quite short, so we can just reread those to remember where we are. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. The last time we talked about that, that standard kind of letter format, both the Hellenistic version and then how Paul slightly modified it uh, to write uh, epistles, scriptural letters. And so we had a few basic sections. And so last week we got through the intro, those long two verses. And today we'll dive into the Thanksgiving in just a few minutes. Uh, but first, let's just pick apart a few of the things from that intro as a recap. So who is the author of Colossians in verse 1. Paul and Timothy. Right. So there's two because sometimes we forget that. But Paul and Timothy. Paul's an apostle. Timothy's named as a brother. Uh, what does that say about how Paul thinks of other uh, ministers of the gospel? Yeah, it, it, he didn't say I'm the great apostle. And then there's that Timothy guy who's my servant. No, he's a fellow brother. He's a fellow faithful laborer. Uh, so Paul's not a solo super apostle. Uh, he's working with other men to grow and build the church. All right, and then who does he write to? To sinners? To the saints in the church. Right, and so he's writing specifically to the church at Colossae, but they're called hagios, which can be holy or can be saints, is how we often translate it. Uh, so that's how your identity, uh, that's what your identity is in Christ, is that you are a saint or you are a holy one depending on how you translate that word. Uh, so that's the recipient of the letter, and that's us today reading the letter, or the holy ones, the saints. And then there's a two-part uh, blessing from Paul and Timothy to op- uh, close out that opening section. What is that? Grace and peace. A grace and a peace benediction before you get into the body of the letter. And so then, in a second, we'll move into the thanksgiving. Uh, but before we do that, I want to highlight something for us to watch out for as we walk through this Thanksgiving section. So flip over to 1 Corinthians 13. And we'll look at the last verse in the chapter, which is verse 13. So 13.13 of 1 Corinthians. And whether you know it or not from the reference, it's a verse you know and have heard many times. All right, I think most of you are there. So it says, Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So what are the three things listed there? Faith, hope, and love. Now, this is commonly referred to as one of Paul's triads, one of Paul's three points that he includes in most of his letters. Many of his thanksgivings, uh, many other elements of his books will contain all three of these major themes, faith, hope, and love. And so often they're tied together. Occasionally you'll see one without the other. But very often, if you pay attention going through his letters, you'll see all three appear. They're not always in the same order or anything, but these three are kind of one of Paul's big focuses as he presents his theology throughout the New Testament uh, letters that he wrote. Um, 
And depending on what theologians you read, some really focus on that three-part theology. Three comes up everywhere. People like John Frame really press on that, that triad, that three points. Not always these, but that everything comes in threes. That may be going a bit too far, but faith, hope, and love is definitely a strong triad for Paul. So as we read through the Thanksgiving section, that's something to watch out for. Faith, hope, and love, because all three of those are going to appear very early in this Thanksgiving. All right, any questions about the, where we are or about that faith, hope, and love triad idea? Yeah. Correct. Correct. Now, most people assume that Paul was the primary author, that he did more of the work, uh, but we don't really know how that work was divided. Both of them are listed as author. And so, yeah, when it says we, it's Paul and Timothy. Yeah. And, of course, there are other letters where Paul is not the only one listed as the author. And, again, we forget that and we just say, oh, Paul wrote all this with no help. He wrote it with other people, many of the letters. So, uh, yeah, when it says we or us, uh, it's either referring to the church, including Paul, wherever he is, he and the church, or him and, as the author or if there's a co-author. So it, it, I mean, it does depend on where it is. But, like, if you look at verse 3, we always thank God. So that's probably him and Timothy. All right, other questions? Good question. All right. Um, so th- Okay, so what we're going to start in verse 3 and on, 3 through 14 of chapter 1, is the Thanksgiving section. And it's prayer, Thanksgiving. Um, so this is pretty typical. Again, this is going back to that letter format idea. But every Pauline letter pretty much has a Thanksgiving. There's one notable exception, though. What's the notable exception to almost every Pauline letter having a Thanksgiving section or that opening prayer section? This is where you have to try to remember the theology of Paul's letters. What was it? I thought I might have heard it. Galatians. That's it. Yeah, if you if you go to Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, in normal Pauline format, was you give your intro, you say who you're writing, you say who you're writing to, you give your grace and peace, uh, which are all there in Galatians 1, uh, 1 through 3. Uh, and then he actually, in this, in Galatians, actually gives an extended grace and peace, where he expands on things in the grace and peace. But it's not a thanksgiving or a prayer. It's a really doxology building on that grace and peace benediction. And then you go into verse 6, and what does it say? Someone read verse 6. So why is there no thanksgiving back in Galatians? Yeah, to a serious situation. They are turning from the gospel. So in every other letter, Paul finds something to give thanks for to God because he is thankful for the work God is doing. But there, something tragic is happening and he has to jump on it. So no thanksgiving there. But you go back to Colossians and there's not that sense of urgency. There's not this skipping of this thanksgiving section. Instead, we have... uh, what I consider to be one of the richest Thanksgiving sections in any Pauline letter. Uh, extremely uh, uh, not dense in a good way, as in just comprehensive and in-depth, just very rich Thanksgiving. All right, just generally, what is a Thanksgiving before we read? Last pre-topic. What is Thanksgiving?
I think that's the best way to put it. Um, because often when we talk about being thankful, we, uh, of course, we talk about being thankful to God a lot. But sometimes we're thankful to people. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong to thank somebody. But biblically, we should really thank God for what they have done. And if you look at all of Paul's thanksgivings, he is addressing God, saying, thank you, Lord, for the faith that I see in this church. Uh, that's what he's saying. So everything is directed at God and what he has done in that church. And as we walk through the thanksgiving, you'll see that pictured out. But he's not saying, man, I'm glad y'all are awesome. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, the Lord has worked in you, and I'm grateful for that. That's what the thanksgiving section in appalling letter is. All right, I think that's enough intro stuff. Let's actually read. Let's start with the first half, which is three through eight. Uh, can I have a volunteer to read that, please? Do I need to call names? Jody, do you? Okay, thank you, Dave. Thanks, Dave. All right, so go back to verse 3. Who is giving thanks? It's already been said, but let's reset. it. Paul and Timothy. Right, so we, plural, we always thank God. Now, what does it mean that they always thank God? Throughout the day, nonstop, 24-7, no sleep. Are they praying for the Colossians? No. It's not meant to be that they never stop praying for the Colossians. Uh, we always thank God. Skip that uh, part in commas there. When we pray for you. So whenever Paul thinks of the Colossians, which we can assume is very regularly, Paul likely prayed three times a day, kind of following that standard Jewish pattern of prayer three times a day. Or is it no, three? And so he would be praying for them at least some of those times each day, most likely. And whenever he does pray for them, then he's going to thank God for them and for what God has done in them. All right, so we uh, thanking continually, but not every second. There's a big difference there. We have to do other things in our life. We can't literally pray 24-7, right? Um, all right, what about the part in parentheses there? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you make of that? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the one they're thinking, right. And this one is somewhat atypical. Some letters have this pattern. Normally, normally it's God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But is that what's listed here? No, it's slightly different. It's God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not a huge difference. We're not to make like some huge theological argument out of that. It's just something different that we can note, that Paul had some variation. In the way he wrote, there's style differences and different ways to say things. And that's a good thing. Uh, what is Christ's title there? Yeah, Lord Jesus Christ. Um, 
What does Lord mean in the New Testament? What is that word coming from? Testing your memory here. Master, okay, that's a good word, master. Uh, Kurios is the Greek word. It can mean master. Master, Lord. But where does it come from? Is this a new term that Paul is bringing in? A new idea? Correct. It's the Old Testament Yahweh. So when we see Lord in the Old Testament, and it's all caps, uh, that's the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The way they translate Yahweh is uh, kurios in Greek, and that's what we translate as Lord in the New Testament. So this is carrying forward that Yahweh title. So Christ as Yahweh. There's God the Father, and there's Christ who is Yahweh. So just ascribing a great title of deity to the Son, even as he's listed as the Son of the Father. So it's not a subordinate position in the sense of he is lesser than the Father. He is Yahweh, just as the God is the Father, right? So that's kind of, uh, there's a lot in that one title. Any questions about that? All right, so that's the one they're thanking. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So every time they pray for the Colossians, they're giving thanks to God. All right, verse 4. Why are they giving thanks? What are they giving thanks for? Yeah. So it's really multiple things. Faith and love. Right. So that's two of the triad, right? And then you move into verse 5 to find the third because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So we've got to break down that triad now. So why are they giving thanks because of the Colossians' faith? Don't overthink it. So since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to put it. Their faith has the right object. Yeah, uh, they have come to the faith. They believe in Christ. They are members of the church. They are saints, holy ones of God. And because of that, because of the growth, the multiplication, the fruitfulness of the church, Paul and Timothy are giving thanks for that faith that they have in Christ. And, of course, the second part of that, and of the love that you have for all the saints. Who are all the saints? Yeah, other fellow believers. So uh, just in Colossae, just at that church? No, across across the world. So across the known world at that time, anyway, the church was still spreading. Uh, but they don't just, they understand that they are saved. They understand that they're in a local church. That is a bunch of saints called together. And they understand that beyond those walls, beyond those borders, so to speak, that there are other churches, that the church is growing and expanding and the gospel is going forth. So that's something that we can get bogged down in or just outright forget as the church is that there is a global, larger, capital C church. Because so often we think about our church and then we forget that there's anything beyond the walls. Or we think about, well, there's a church up the hill and there's a church over there and we think about the area. Or maybe we think denominationally. So we have our, our good Presbyterians, Reformed PCA people, and OPC. Oh, they're all right too. ARP, yeah, we, we can like them. That's fine. Uh, Methodist, ooh, ooh, you know, I, I'm just making jokes here. 
Uh, so sometimes we think in those denominational lines and we draw off, okay, we don't like this denomination, so they're not really the church. Um, and then we don't even think globally. We, we think in ways we shouldn't about some churches or at least we're casting judgment when maybe we shouldn't, although we should be careful. Um, don't go too far with what I said there. Uh, but there is a global church, there's a local church, there's the individual church, and we have to be cognizant of all these levels in our prayer, in our relationships, um, in understanding what God is doing and who he has called us to be. If we don't understand this larger church, then we're not going to, we're going to be missing a big piece of the gospel in our understanding. Uh, and so the saints in Colossae, they understood this. They have faith in Christ and they have love for all the saints. So they have a picture of this larger church. Sure, it wasn't perfect but they understood enough uh, to know what was going on, what God's plan was. Are there any questions about faith or love? I think we put it all together when we see hope in a second. But. Yeah, right. Well said. Yeah, they are inseparable, and I think that's why we often see that triad fully listed out in some form or another, because you can't really separate them. They all go together. If you have one and not the other two, well, are you really believing? Are you really walking with Christ? The answer is probably no. Um, You could be more immature in one area, but really they grow together. Um, All right, let's look at the third element of the triad. So faith and love, would you say one is primary over the other in how they're presented there, at least in this passage? Is one more important than the other or lesser than the other with how Paul presents them there, the faith and love? Faith in Christ, so you would say that's primary and that's what like kind of leads to the love? Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's what that First Corinthians 13 passage said as well. Uh, but what we're going to see here is might surprise you in a second. And I, not surprise you as in it's uh, contradicting that, but as in we're looking at things from a slightly different angle as we go into the next verse. That's why I wanted you to think about faith or love. Wait, which is primary? Is one primary? Uh, I would say they're more equal here in their primacy. I mean, of course, they're both crucial. We talked about you can't really separate them. But right here, how Paul's presenting it, I think they're kind of meant to be appositives, two things that are equal. Uh, but as we move into the third part of the triad, we're going to see a little bit more of an order being presented here. So verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because, what does that word imply? Yeah, based on this thing. So you have faith in Christ. You love the brothers because of what? Right. So whereas in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, love is definitely the prime prime uh, of the triad being presented. But here we're looking at things from a slightly different angle. So here Paul says that your love and your faith are a result of, and I think it's appropriate to use that language, the hope laid up for you in heaven. So here we see it's almost like a circle. So you can almost look at any part and how it leads to the next. So if, you, if it helps you to think of it like that, we're not contradicting other passages by saying this. 
Uh, that's what I want to say there with the circle idea. Uh, but the hope is what drives your faith and your love in this passage. All right. So what is the hope here? Heaven. Yeah, the hope laid up for you in heaven. So what does that mean exactly? Okay, so it is our eternal resting place. Good. What else? No other guesses? Surely you'll have other guesses. Come on. Right. Right. And there's one more element I want to hear about in heaven. That's the final element because Christ is there with the Father. Flip to chapter 3 and we'll see that all of those being presented here. So Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So there we really see the uh, Christ being in glory stressed the most there. Uh, but it's your internal inheritance as well. Uh, what's the third element I'm forgetting? Christ is inheritance, eternal home. Okay, now all three are there. All right, any questions about that? Right. I absolutely believe so, and I think it applies here perfectly. Uh, it is that hope, that future forward-looking, confident expectation, not hoping things work out well, not hoping, well, you know, I'll probably make it, maybe. <laughs> it is. This is a certain hope. Uh, this is something you are assured of, life and glory with Christ, that your inheritance is there with Christ, that it is your eternal home with Christ. So, yeah, it's a, definitely a confident expectation. Uh, it's not just wishful thinking. And so I absolutely think that's the correct way to approach this. And because of all those things that I just said, well, of course it drives your faith. Of course it builds up your love. Because as you think about what's to come, what does it do? It makes you anxious? Yeah, because you're waiting for it, right? And if you're waiting for it, you're happy for that, it takes your eyes off what in this world? Really everything in this world, all the bad things in this world. It takes your mind off of idolatry here and it pushes your hope forward. And if your hope is there, then your love for one another is going to grow and your faithfulness and faith is going to grow. Because you know that phrase, and I've talked about this before, but uh, too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Y'all heard that before? That's a complete lie. <laughs> if it seems true of somebody, it's just they're in la-la land. That doesn't mean that they're truly... Uh, Dwelling on glory, because if they are, Scripture says they will be growing in holiness, growing in love, growing in their ability to serve the church and even the world to an extent. Uh, so this hope is crucial. And so in this passage, like I said, it's almost like a circle where they all feed each other, but we're focusing on hope right now. That's what Paul's focus is in this Thanksgiving, this hope uh, laid up for you in heaven.
Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Right. And if you can, as you go through trials and things, it's hard to stop and dwell on glory instead of the present difficulties. But when you can, when you pursue Christ and keep praying and just try and it won't be perfect now, but as you do, suddenly those trials become a whole lot easier to get through. Suddenly you see God's grace in them. Suddenly uh, they end a lot quicker. <laughs> if they end, some things are ongoing, of course. But, um, yeah, we see a lot more of God's grace through those trials when our eyes are on the right thing. Okay, so because of this great hope, and here we complete the triad, and as we continue in verse 5, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So what have they heard before? God's grace? Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely God's grace. And how does Paul and Timothy, how do they explain that at the end of verse 5? The word of truth? And there's another phrase too. The gospel. So what do those mean? Why are there two things listed instead of one? What's the difference? Is there a difference? How do we understand word of truth versus the gospel? Yeah, I think that's a good good way to put it. The, the word of truth is the gospel. They are positives. They're the same thing, just said in different ways. And so if you translate uh, gospel literally, euangeloi, what does it mean? Or euangelon, if you want to be accusative or whatever. The word, well, yeah, it could be taken those words. It's good news is how we normally translate it, but it's just an apposite. It's the same thing as the word of truth, because the gospel is truth. It's the true word of God, the good news of God, the gospel of God. So it's just a lot of ways of saying the same thing. So then the question, why does Paul use both? If they mean the same thing, you could just be quick and say the gospel, moving on. Yeah, yeah, I think it is mostly to put more emphasis on it. Uh, it also gives a description of the gospel, another uh, facet of it. Like if you look at a, a diamond or something like that, which... Some, I don't know, I've never had money to just hold a diamond. But if you did, and you held it in your hand and you turned it, you would see different faces to it that have been marked in. And that, that makes the, the light reflect in it and shine and sparkle and all that. Uh, so as you turn the gospel and look at it from different angles, you're going to see different facets, different uh, uh, glints of light, different sparkles being presented, even though it's all the same gospel. And so it's kind of the same idea here. Uh, the word of truth is another way to explain the gospel. It's God's true word to you. He is telling you the truth about what you need to know. So that's another way you can talk about the gospel here. Uh, but I think it is for emphasis, and yet we also can learn by that repetition. Any questions about that? All right, well, let's continue moving into verse 6 then. All right, sorry, I was checking something. Uh, Hazel, could you read verse 6 for us again? Okay.
Yeah, if you can keep going through the whole verse. That's good. Thank you, Hazel. Uh, so we're talking about this great hope, which has come through the gospel, through the truth. Um, so that first part of verse 6, which has come to you. So you're not waiting on any more uh, revelation in order to complete your journey to the faith. You are a saint and you have received the gospel. Therefore, you are a saint in the church, right? You have that hope. You know what it is. And so they were going to receive more revelation in time, but they had what they needed already. Uh, they had what was life-changing. And so how is the gospel further described here? So the gospel has come to them, and then we get some descriptions of it. Yeah. It's growing. Uh, it's bearing fruit and it's growing. There's those two strong words there, two uh, participles describing an ongoing, continuous activity. It is growing. It is bearing fruit. There is no end in sight for that. Uh, and it has always been doing that in God's people. So it's just this continuing process of growing and bearing fruit. So it's doing that where first? Where does Paul say it's doing that? First, in this verse. The Colossians, and where else then? Right, so it's come to them, and it's in the whole world is bearing fruit, and there in Colossae it is bearing fruit. Now, what does that terminology bearing and growing remind you of in Scripture? Does it remind you of something? <laughs> yeah, that's a great connection. Uh, the vine and the branches, that picture of Christ is the one growing his church continually. Right, that's a good one. What else? Yeah, uh-huh, very good. So it's not just that the gospel goes forth and people hear it, but that it is implanted and lived out in their lives and in their hearts and that they're growing in these things. Great. What else? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So there's uh, the church is uh, not proving. They are bearing witness to the fact that they have been transformed by the gospel. Okay, that's good. I uh, think early Old Testament as well. There are a lot of connections here if you haven't figured. Parable of the sower, you could connect it to that as well. But go back to Genesis in your mind and think about what this might connect to. I'll give you one more Second to see if anyone can come up with it before we flip there. Tree of life, no, not quite, but it, it's around there. All right, go to Genesis 1. The Jeopardy timer ran out. So chapter 1 and then go to verse 28. And Leon, are you willing to read that?
All right, now you may be confused at first, but there's two words there, be fruitful and multiply. Those are a direct parallel, direct connection to growing and bearing fruit. They mean the same thing. And if you go through all the different words from Greek to Hebrew and Hebrew to anyway, it all connects back to these words. So what is this verse? What do we often refer to this as in theology? What is this command that God gives Adam and Eve? It's kind of like the pre-Great Commission. If you could think of it in similar terms. It's called the cultural mandate. So the cultural mandate was given to Adam and Eve. They were to uh, subdue the earth and take dominion over it. And the way that they were to do that is by uh, being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth so that they might subdue it and take dominion over it. Now, how good a job did Adam and Eve do at this cultural mandate? It's not a trick question. How well did they do? Is the earth subdued and under the dominion of the children of Adam and Eve? Not really, no. I mean, in a sense, we're all across the globe, but have we really fulfilled this in Adam? Is it done? Is this no longer applied because it's been fulfilled and that's it? Right, right. And so in a sense, mankind is all over the world, but are we in control over creation in any sense? No, mankind has failed the cultural mandate. Big old X, no, fail. Now, he is our original what? Adam. If you're not in Christ, you are in Adam. He is your original covenant head until you become in Christ. So all the world who's not in Christ is in Adam. Therefore, they have failed the cultural mandate. But here's the fun thing. So we go to Colossians and we see that in Christ, what is the gospel doing in the world? Growing. And what else is it doing? Bearing fruit. So everything that Adam was meant to do as our federal head in the garden, he failed to do. After the fall, he definitely failed to do it. But then in Christ, the gospel has fulfilled the cultural mandate going forward. Now that doesn't mean it's done yet because God is still gathering in his elect. But what we see is that it is being completed in Christ and that because of the cross, it is as good as done. And yet we're still waiting on the full number to come in. But what we want to see is that as we go to Colossians, I think this is a very intentional reference by Paul to say that that which was failed in the Old Testament, that which was failed under Adam is now being fulfilled through Christ and his gospel. And so that hope you have in the gospel, well, it's a good hope because the gospel is growing and bearing fruit and multiplying and doing everything that Adam and his descendants on their own could not do. And so we see an explosion of this cultural mandate now being fulfilled or in the process of being fulfilled, if you will, in the gospel back in Colossians. So an extremely rich reference there to this uh, bearing fruit and growing. So wherever the gospel takes hold, what happens? It grows. There is a total conquest by Christ. There is growth and there is fruit and there is life. And that's what we see the church going out across the world at this time. And still what's happening, and we don't often think of it in quite the same terms because in a sense the church is around the world and yet there's so many areas that are completely devoid of the gospel. And yet the gospel is always moving forward. God is always saving new people. He's always moving in new nations where he hasn't moved either in a long time or maybe ever. 
And so, like, where's the church growing most rapidly now? There's kind of two main areas in the world. It's not America. Asia, and where else? Africa. Places where in the past it hasn't really ever had a true explosion before. And yet Africa and China are two places where the church is exploding. Now, then you can examine, well, is all of it great? No, not necessarily. But there is fruitfulness. There is growth and fruit being produced. All right, questions about that. That was a big topic we just talked about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's great, the mustard seed. And, and yeah, it tells you a lot about what his hope is with the church, that he believes firmly because it's, uh, he knows it to be true because it's Christ's gospel that is going to keep going. And so it's like he's, uh, as he's planted these churches, as the other ministers, apostles have planted these churches, it's like... Uh, the starting points for this great takeover where the church can just continue to explode and grow and multiply. Uh, and in a way that's exponential, not just, well, we added one, we added two, but these two can affect four people who can affect 20, you know, down the road like that. Uh, so just an explosion. So what we're part of what Paul and Timothy are giving thanks for here in Colossians is that the gospel is exploding. And this new church, Colossae, which Paul had never met in person, is growing. Uh, and they're thankful for that. All right, any more questions or comments about that? No, I think we can finish this first uh, section that we read. Uh, all right, so it does also among you, latter half of verse 6 here, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So when did it start to grow among the Colossians? When did the gospel begin to bear fruit and multiply there? They heard it, and what else? There's two parts. So first they heard it, understood it. Right. They have to hear it first. You can't just like, oh, wait a minute. I get it now. Uh, You have to hear the truth preached. That is God's means of uh, proclaiming his gospel is it's preached to people, and then they hear it. Then he works in their hearts so that they can understand it. And it is at that point when they have heard and understood that they're truly uh, receiving the grace of God in truth. Now, what does that word truth connect back to that we just used it in? The word of truth, the gospel, right. And so it's that truth that they receive, uh, that's when they hear it and understand it, that's when they're, they're in, so to speak. All right, where did the Colossians hear this gospel? Who presented it to them? Did God magically appear to them in a vision and tell them what they needed to know? Paphras, no, it was just a man. A man went and preached the gospel to them. And this man was Epaphras. And so they heard the gospel preached and proclaimed from a minister, from an imperfect fallen man, though he was a saint. And through that, God has chosen to work. And so he works among the Colossians and calls them to faith through Epaphras' preaching. And you see there as well, is, is Paul declaring himself the master of Epaphras? No. He's a fellow servant. He's another man sharing the gospel, another minister. Uh, the humility of Paul, but also just that that what's the prime goal is to spread the gospel. Paul doesn't really, in a sense, care how it happens. Now, don't take that too far. 
But any minister produce, uh, proclaiming the gospel is the grace of God going forth, is the gospel bearing fruit. Uh, so fellow laborers in the gospel. Nobody's a, a minister all by themselves. That doesn't work. Nobody's a Christian all by themselves. That doesn't work either. And then how else is Epaphras described at the end of verse 7? Yeah, Yeah, I think that's how I want to be described someday. <laughs> be a faithful minister of Christ. You can't get any better than that. A faithful minister of Christ to the Colossians. That's what Epaphras was. And he was that because he made known... To, or, or, sorry, I'm, I went the wrong way there. He's faithful minister because he has preached the gospel. And then what else has he done in verse 8? So this is reminding us of the fact that this is a letter. Right, because Paul and Timothy, they didn't go to Colossae. They didn't plant the church there. Epaphras preached to them, and then the church sprung up by the uh, by God's Spirit and work among these ministers. But Paul hadn't been there. And so they hear about this great work, this explosion, this church that's taken root there, uh, and Epaphras is the one who made that known to them. And what's the thing is funny, we talked about, or well, I'm on the wrong side of the board, but hope is kind of the main focal point. But now what does Paul say about what Epaphras made known to him? Their love. So then we're back to 1 Corinthians 13. So again, the kind of that circle. Which one do you start with? Uh, they're all connected. But anyway, here it's their love in the spirit that was made known to Paul. Um, so it's just fun to see how all those three elements are stressed throughout. All right, questions about that first half of the Thanksgiving portion of Colossians 1. Or comments. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah, then you got well, population has increased. That that would be a a vain thing to go through. But yeah, the church is always growing. Now it does seem at times to kind of. I don't know if shrinks the right word, but the number of the faithful maybe are severely pruned. Maybe that, I don't know, maybe that's the way to say it in some areas. And the gospel almost seems to move more powerfully into other areas. But that doesn't mean there are no believers there anymore. The church is still there and thriving. So, yeah, you're right. I think it's a lot of dross and chaff that's been burned off uh, or is being burned off maybe. But, yeah, how does this make you think about how you pray prayers of thanksgiving in your own walk with Christ? As you look at the way Paul writes here. <laughs> I have to agree with mine about mine too. Uh, and it doesn't mean I don't mean by that that are you as eloquent as Paul? Um, but are you thinking as deeply about Paul? Uh, are you thinking as deeply about what God's grace is really doing? Are you thinking about the gospel in these terms? Are you praying that the gospel goes forth and bears fruit and multiplies like Paul is? Is that your primary concern? Or in your thanksgiving, uh, like I often do, I'll freely confess this. I'm thankful for this and that and that and that that you've given me, but not thankful for, well, I do thank God for what he's doing in the church a lot. But then at times it's just you forget to as well. 
or you neglect to, or however you want to say it. Uh, so what are we thanking God for, and how are we thanking him? Uh, what is our motivation even for thanking him for certain things? Is it because God is doing powerful work and is displaying his glory, or it's just something we wanted, so we're happy about it? Which hopefully that ends up lining up with God's will, but with our sin, not always. Right. 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 Well said. Yeah. Uh, uh, my last words will be, uh, the, unless someone else has a comment. And one thing I'm very thankful for in this church, especially, is from the moment I got here on coming on Wednesday nights, uh, y'all are a prayerful church. And that doesn't mean we can't work on being a more prayerful church, but y'all are a very prayerful church. Uh, I've been in churches where, and just visited churches and stuff, where you might have two people willing to pray on any given night. And this, I mean, we pray a lot every Wednesday. Um, and in groups and everything, and I'm thankful for that, uh, acknowledging God's grace and praying for that fruitfulness and growth in the church, whether it's in numbers or just us in our faith. Um, yeah. All right, any other comments before I close this in prayer? All right, we'll continue the Thanksgiving section next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do give you thanks. We give you praise. We give you worship. Uh, we are entirely dependent upon your grace, and we are most thankful for it. Uh, for in it, we see our hope. Uh, in it, we are enabled to love. In it, we are able to strengthen our faith. So, Lord, let us cling to these things. Let us learn better how to give thanks to you for the things that you have done uh, for us, uh, for the salvation you have brought on our behalf, um, for the things we can see you doing as you move through this church and globally and even in this region. Uh, growing and building your church. It's not always easily visible, and yet we know because you have promised that you are doing it. So, Lord, help us to, to pray for that end. Help us to uh, be servants of you for that end. Uh, use us in that plan to grow and multiply your church. And we thank you that you have called us to be saints here. And we give praise to your name. In Jesus' name.